turn to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel, and uh, let's see, that doesn't say that title, I'm actually going to start in Daniel chapter 11, verse 30. That should, it, it probably said Daniel 12, and I'll, I'm going to get to that pa passage here in just a minute. I forgot to put Daniel 11, because that's where we're going to start today. Last week, we, uh, we did a, a study on uh, the Feast of Hanukkah and end-time prophecy, and how Hanukkah really is uh, that feast. It's, it's a minor festival in, in Israel, but it's the feast that actually begins to open and reveal a lot of end-time prophecy and end-time prophecy things. Uh, it's not to say it's, you know, I mean, because there's other feasts, of course. Uh, all of the uh, fall feasts of Israel uh, that include, of course, the tabernacles and the trumpets, uh, those feasts uh, have a lot of prophetic connections. But uh, the Feast of Hanukkah uh, has more than, uh, I think, a lot of people give, uh, give it credit for. And um, and it and again it happens to be a minor uh, prophet uh, I should say I'm sorry a minor festival, but it is a fest a festival or a feast called the Feast of Dedication in the Bible, and it's only found in Matthew I'm sorry in John chapter 10, and there in John chapter 10 Jesus is the one that celebrates Hanukkah, uh, which is re really good because uh, because uh, because it's a festival of lights, and because the uh, uh, the menorah that uh, was part of the understanding of Hanukkah being that which was uh, was needing to have the oil for, and and, uh, and they only had one day of oil uh, after uh, the Maccabees uh, had come and and uh, uh, came back into the temple uh, because it had been desecrated and, and whatnot by uh, Antiochus. And uh, uh, anyway, they they found one day of oil, and uh, the miracle was that it lasted. Uh, for the, all the days of the uh, festival itself, or the feast of uh, dedication itself. So uh, within that uh, account, which isn't found again in the scriptures, but it's found in the Apocrypha, and we read a little bit of that passage last week, uh, nonetheless, Antiochus Epiphanes is actually... Uh, spoken of in Daniel chapter 11. So that's where we want to start because we want to come back and tie into the things. And I'll, I'll kind of catch us up on where we were last week. But in uh, Daniel chapter 11, verse 30, uh, this is the prophecy that leads to uh, the coming of Antiochus, or Antiochus as it's called. For the ships of Chitim, Chitim is... Uh, really uh, the island of uh, Cyprus. And uh, at the time, as I mentioned last week, Katim was, was, was uh, at the time held by Rome. Rome was going to be the, emperor, the empire that was going to defeat the Greeks. So for the ships of Katim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return, him being Antiochus, who is uh, grieved because he was kept from actually conquering Egypt completely, and again we talked about that last week. Uh, Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So he comes actually against the people of God, uh, the, the Israelites or those of, 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 of Israel and of Judah, 
So shall he do, it says, he shall even return and have intelligence with, which means that he has favor and, and he shows regard to them that forsake the holy covenant. So he wanted to really have favor with the apostate Jews, the Jews that were, that were leaving the, uh, the word of God and, and leaving their devotion to, uh, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says, an arm shall stand on his part, speaking of an army, uh, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice. I could only be speaking of the temple in Jerusalem. And shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. We mentioned last week from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus actually spoke about this abomination. So he makes note of it that it is written in the book of Daniel. And this is, this is one account of it. And remember, this is the account that deals with Antiochus being the one that, uh, that actually uh, desecrates the temple with the sacrifice of a pig on the altar, as well as uh, putting uh, an image of Zeus uh, there in the holy place. Verse 32, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. So he flatters all the people that uh, don't want to have anything to do with the God of Israel any longer. But notice this, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And we'll talk about that verse at the very end. We'll go on to chapter 12 and look at verses 11 through 13. Because here now, this, this particular passage is not speaking of Antiochus. It is speaking about the Antichrist. And it says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away. So notice again, there was a, a very near fulfillment and there's a further fulfillment away, but it's a, almost exactly the same thing. It says, from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. We talked about the three and a half years last week. Three and a half years is something that ties Hanukkah to, uh, uh, to the end times. The usage of that uh, length of time, time and times and half a time, three and a half years. And again, we spoke on that last week. Uh, it goes on to say, "Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the two thousand. Um, I'm sorry, cometh to the thousand three hundred uh, five and thirty days, or a thousand three hundred and thirty-five days, which we won't deal with tonight. But we will come back to one of these uh, one of these days, maybe next week, uh, since we're starting the, the new year next week uh, on the second. Uh, I think I'd like to do that. Maybe we'll do that." Before we go on to the book of Joel, because we're going on to the book of Joel to study. Uh, verse 13, but go thou thy way till the end be. And he's, uh, the Lord is, uh, you know, encouraging uh, Daniel to just let it rest. Wow. But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Okay. Now go back a little bit further to Daniel chapter 9 as we consider the timing of everything that's going on concerning the end times. The prophecy of Daniel uh, here in chapter 9 verses 24 to 27, we've done this uh, very specifically, very uh, uh, in-depth a few, uh, probably about a year or so ago. So 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy city thy holy city, that's Jerusalem, <clears throat> to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make 
reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, I, I bring this part up because I want you to realize that now there's a third time frame. There was the time frame of Antiochus in chapter 11. There is the time frame of the, of the, of the Antichrist, which is still yet to come. And then there is the very end of all of that that follows. This is what it's dealing with here. It's dealing with uh, how God is going to deal with the Antichrist and the blessing that is going to come upon Israel after all of this. That's why it talks about the end, uh, the uh, uh, finishing the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's saying. This is finally the last seven years of the judgment that is upon Israel for their sins against God. If you remember the 70 weeks of years, 69 weeks of years have already been fulfilled, but the, seven, the, the, the 70th week or the 70th week of years, that last seven-year period has not yet started. That's the seven years of tribulation that is yet to come. So that is what is being said here. At the end of it is going to come the blessing for the people of Israel. Uh, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command or the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the, unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So all of that is the 69 weeks of years. From the time that the decree goes forth from Artaxerxes in, in Persia to, uh, to go, uh, you know, to Ezra and Nehemiah to go and build not only the, the temple, rebuild the temple, but also to build the walls, which is what Nehemiah was supposed to do, uh, would be all of these 69 weeks of years. Uh, that would um, equal out to 483 years between the time that the decree went out to the time of Jesus dying on the cross. And that's, uh, and it says, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So that's talking about the, the crucifixion. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, now that, that's, that's going to be first and foremost uh, fulfilled by the Romans who destroy the city in, uh, in 70 AD. But it then also points to the coming of the Antichrist who also wants to come and destroy the city later, uh, which is still yet to come. So notice here that uh, in the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. There's the seven week or seven year period of, of tribulation. Uh, the Antichrist comes just as Antiochus came, kind of spoke flattering words, uh, said, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a treaty with you, you know, we'll kind of oversee things, but then Right in the middle of those, those seven years, right in the middle of those seven years, notice this is the next phrase, and in the midst of the week, there's that three and a half year period, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. In other words, by desecrating and profaning the holy place and making it unclean, it becomes desolate. Nobody can go in there. Nobody can worship in there anymore even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured out or poured upon the desolate. Okay, all of that just to establish the time frames of all that's going to be happening 
between the time of, of uh, uh, the Maccabees and the Antiochus and then the Romans and then the Antichrist and then at the very end. So the premise of our previous study had to do with Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, as the beginning of the revelation of the end of times. The story that uh, we said began in the intertestamental period, the 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the book of Matthew, or the beginning of the, of the New Testament that gives the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the story that began in the intertestamental period before the birth of Jesus Christ, describing the rise of a man named Antiochus IV, and he named himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest, or the manifestation of God. So he, he considered himself to be God. And uh, that was about 167 B.C., so that's about somewhere halfway between, you know, that, uh, that period of time, uh, who had come to take Jerusalem and Israel for his kingdom, and yet will point to the time that will be fulfilled by the person for whom he would be a, a forerunner. The one who will be known as the Antichrist. The fulfillment of the son of perdition. And the one who will eventually declare himself to be God and demand that all people give up their traditions, give up their religions, and give up their gods. And in the case of Israel, to give up the one true God. Because Israel really was a, 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 a truly a... Um, monotheistic society. They, they only believed in one God. And if they truly believed the word of God, they believed in one God and there was no one else to be served, no one else to be worshipped, and they were to be separate, always to be separate from everybody else from that particular standpoint. But that is exactly what Antiochus, the Seleucid king, did when he occupied Israel. He would defile the temple by sacrificing that pig on the altar and pouring blood on the scripture scrolls, eventually turning the temple into a shrine for Zeus. And while insisting at the same time to be called the manifestation of God. So to, to make a long story short, this wicked king sought not only to change the times and the seasons that Israel followed. The seasons, you know, the, to change the time and the seasons would, would mean to really just change your whole calendar. You're not going to be worshiping and, uh, your, your seven feasts any longer. That's all going to change. You're going to worship the way we tell you to worship and how to worship. The world, you know, the world kind of has, has done that in this season, hasn't it? You know, where, where you know, it used to be and... and uh, I, I was taking this from somebody who's actually a Jew uh, uh, who, who says, you know, we have no problem with, with Christmas. This is what, what makes the, 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 the holiday special. It's, it's, Christmas is, is a holiday, and it's a religious holiday, and it should be observed. But nowadays they say, you know, uh, we don't want that anymore. So now we go around telling everybody, you know, well, uh, Celebrate winter. Now let me ask you something. You were out there today in the cold. Were you out there celebrating it? I wasn't. I was in here freezing to death. I know, I know a lot of people in Wisconsin because I go to Wisconsin a couple of times a year and thankfully the Lord doesn't send me during the winter. 
because they don't like it. They love living in Wisconsin, but they don't like the cold. None of them do. Now, today here, you know, we're, we're in the 40s or 50s, whatever, they come down here in short sleeves. For them, this is nice. See, but, they, but we don't celebrate winter. Oh, let's celebrate the, you know, the winter time. No, 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 you know, we celebrate the birth of Christ. <laughs> or, or we rejoice in the fact that Jesus came with, with, with great purpose to come to this earth, as he did. So, you know, this is the way the world tries to change things, away from the, the traditions, you know, that we ourselves uh, have lived under for, for, for a while. We don't need, you know, we don't need these celebrations, do we? Because we already know what Jesus Christ has done. But we use the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. So, you know, that, that becomes for us an opportunity. So, this Antiochus would stop at nothing short of destroying Israel itself and its people. And this is what Satan has been trying to do down through the ages. We talked a little bit about that last time. Now what Hanukkah does is reveal the end times. As I said last time, the Antichrist is revealed in Hanukkah. The end times is revealed in Hanukkah. The persecutions are revealed in Hanukkah. A lot of persecutions that took place during the time of Antiochus. And even what is happening in our nation today, to a certain extent, is revealed in Hanukkah. And we'll see a little bit more of that tonight. So now, because Israel did not, <coughs> excuse me, Israel did not fit into Antiochus' one world system, because that's what he was aiming toward. I, I read some of these passages from the uh, Apocrypha last, no, uh, last week, and, and it, uh, it really kind of brought so much of, of uh, the prophecies in Daniel and the book of Revelation together, because the wording was all the same, turning things into a one world system. I, we read that last week, we'll read a little bit of it again tonight. <clears throat> now, because Israel didn't fit into that system, his only solution for this matter was to wipe them out. He wanted to wipe out the people and their faith. Because they were resistant. I mean, there were those that weren't. The, the apostate Jews weren't resistant. They said, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll follow you. We'll do that. We're tired of this anyway. But, but the devoted Jews, the devout Jews, the remnant of Jews that love God still, they, 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 they considered themselves still separate from the things of the world because God had told them to be separate. But as we ended last time, there, there was one condition that needed to be set for these things to take place. And that was that the people of Israel had to start falling away from the faith into apostasy. That was a sign that needed to happen for all of these things to take place, and it did. And it happened big time during the time of Antiochus because they started to follow the way of the Greeks. They started to follow the Greek culture. They started to do the things that the Greeks did. And not only just culturally or socially, but also religiously. And they began to sacrifice other gods, even though they hadn't done that because they didn't come back into the land until they had gone through their, their time of, uh, uh, of punishment in, in, in Babylon. But then they come back 
and they're, they stay kind of, you know, they stay kind of faithful to the Lord. But then right when the Greeks come, there's dissension again. So the priesthood now was very corrupt to the extent that they were the very ones who led Antiochus into the temple to desecrate it. I mean, how else would they, would they you know, they, the, the people would have, if they had known what was going to happen, they probably would have taken a stand. But in this particular case, well, the Greeks had a bigger army, but the priest said, you just come in. There was no, there was no conflict. And there's not going to be a conflict when Antichrist comes because they're going to consider him to be somewhat of a savior for the world. You know, the world is in a, in a, in a, in a, in it's tremendous flux right now from the standpoint of, of, of uh, social, religious, economic, uh, all kinds of problems that, uh, that we see kind of happening in our country. It, it, it's really happening in, 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 across the world. And for the most part, for the most part, the world has 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 sold out to God. I mean, they 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 they're not so they're not sold out to God. They they've they've sold out against God. They have sold out against God. There there's some religiosity, as it were, but just very little. For the most part, Europe itself has become quite secular. The communist countries themselves, of course, have always been godless. And even if they have some sort of Christian religion involved, it's usually very, very ecclesiastical. It, uh, you know, and, and it's, it, in a word, it's dead. It has no power whatsoever. This is why those kinds of, of churches can be controlled. Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Catholic, whatever. They, they can be controlled because they have no power. They've sought to play the power game from the standpoint of politics rather than the trust in the God that they say they serve and the Christ that came to die for the sins of men. So the condition will be ripe again. Just as it was in the time of, of uh, Antiochus, the condition will be ripe again when Antichrist appears on the scene. And if you remember, and we read a longer passage last week, but 2 Thessalonians, let me just read verses 3 and 4. It says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. That is, the day of Christ shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And the one word for falling away in the Greek is the word apostasia. Apostasia. Apostasy. A falling away from the faith. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That would be the Antichrist. And by the way, there's only one other person called the son of perdition in the scriptures, and that's Judas Iscariot, who was a betrayer of Christ. So there is then that sense and spirit of a betrayer in this man of sin who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. He opposes God, but he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So he sees himself now as God, just as, a, as Epif Epiphanes or Antiochus Epiphanes considered himself. He said, I'm God manifest. 
Well, so is, is the, the Antichrist. Paul is writing this and saying this is exactly what uh, is going to happen again. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You remember last week I said that uh, historically uh, there, there's a story that, that when he put the, the image of Zeus in, in the temple that uh, he told the guys who carved it out to make it look like him. So Zeus looks like him. Or he looks like Zeus. I don't know which one it is. No, no. Zeus looks like him. Because he says he's God. So as mentioned last time as well, during the time of the Maccabees, the people had already begun to fall into apostasy, defecting from and forsaking the truth. And they started to follow the pagan heathen ways of the Greeks. Now understand that apostasy can only happen to a people or to a culture that knows God. You've got to know God to get away from God. Now sad, but true, isn't it? You know, if a person's a pagan, he, he doesn't apostatize. He just already is not, you know, in with God. So apostasy means you fall away from something that is true. You fall away from it. So apostasy, in other words, happens to a culture or to a people who once knew God. It is a culture that becomes worse than if it had never known God. That's the problem with apostasy. And that can be classified as the spirit of Antichrist. Now I want you to listen to something. Turn to 1 John. Well, I say listen. I want you to read it and then listen to me because I won't tell you about it. Turn to 1 John. And to set up this next issue that we're going to deal with about the spirit of Antichrist, let's begin reading in verses 15, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. You all are familiar with this passage. I've read it many times. John says to the church, love not the world. Now notice carefully, don't love the world. I would say that's pretty simple to understand, right? You don't have to go through all kinds of, of, of hoops to figure what that means. You just don't love the world. To love something in the scriptures means to put it in the highest place. That's why we're to love God above all things, because God has to be the highest place in our life, the highest person in our life. We're to love God above our parents. You know, it says, you know, uh, if, uh, unless you love God and, 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 and hate your father and mother, I mean, those are the terms that Jesus used. But when he said that, he was just saying, you have to put God above even your family, your, your children. You must love God in that, that much more. And he wants you to love your family. But you have to love God way above that. So understand when he says, love not the world, <clears throat> neither the things that are in the world, now, let me ask you a question. These are things that we have to think about when, when we see them in Scripture. Why is he saying that? Because somebody or some people in the church are loving the world more than they're loving God. That's why we get these warnings in the Scriptures to the church. 
I know that we, we've studied this before, but in James, back <laughs> James chapter 4, you don't have to turn there because uh, it's not, it's not going to be up behind me, but, but look at how strong James talks to the church about things. He says, from, from whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come, come they not hence even of your lust? Uh, the war in your members, you lust not, you have not, you, I mean, you lust and you have not, you kill, desire to have and you cannot obtain, you fight your war, you, uh, you, you have not because you ask not. Uh, and the, but then he says in verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Now he's talking to the church, and spe specifically to the ones that are fallen away from the truth. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God hostility with God if you if you have friendship with the world so that that's why this passage in John is so important because he says love not the world neither the things that are in the world because there must be some people there that are doing that just like people are doing that today in the church if any man love the world now he now he's, he makes it real clear if you love the world the love of the father is not in him so if you love the world then there's no room for the father And you, you, you fill yourself with his love for the world. <clears throat> for all that is in the world. Now he describes the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the three things that condemned man in the garden. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the fruit, God said, you can eat fruit from any tree in this garden except for this one tree. What was it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will die. The lust of the flesh, that, that, that fruit must have been beautiful. That, that, fruit, that, that, that fruit, you know, it had to have stuck out in some way to be tempting. Eve and Adam. The lust of the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes there. What about the pride of life? He doesn't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day you eat of it, the serpent said to them, you'll be like God. The pride of life. You'll be like him. Well, that still happens today when we start to love the world more than we love God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So that, that's just to establish our understanding that we are not to love the world. So that statement is just a preface to the next declaration that John makes about the spirit of Antichrist. Notice verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. What he means is, it, it's, it's, these are the last days. When did the last days start? After Jesus ascended to heaven. The last days began. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists. Whereby we know that it is the last time. This is how we know it's the last time because there's many antichrists around. They went out from us. Now notice this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
They were from us, but they're not of us. They were here, and now they're gone. They were with us in, in, in the love of God and in the love of Christ, but now they're not in that love any longer. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. Because we continue on in loving God and loving Christ and loving his word and loving the things of God and loving heaven and loving the kingdom and, 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 and so on and so forth. But they went out, notice, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. What a tremendous statement that is about those who fall away, about the apostasy, to fall away from the truth. Now, John contrasts those who fall away with those who have an unction. What is an unction? An unction is an anointing. In fact, when we say that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the word Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, means the anointed one. We have translated that through the languages into the, into the uh, Latin, which gave us, well, the Greek and the Latin that gave us Christus, which means an, anoint, uh, an anointing from the Greek, I should say, because the word for unction is the word charisma. The, the very same root for the name of Jesus, or, or the, not the name of Jesus, but the, the, the title of Jesus, which is Christ, or Mashiach, is the same word, charisma. So the anointing is, is for the believers. Notice here in 1 John 2, 20-23, but you have an unction. You have a charisma from the Holy One, and you know all things. Now, don't, don't think that he's saying you know everything, like, you, you know, like you, you, just, you just spout out every answer when somebody asks you a question. No, no. You, you know all the things that pertain to God in the sense of being in unity and fellowship with God and with Christ and with, with, with the church. He says, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. In other words, you know that the word of God is true. You know that the word of God is true. You know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. You know that he is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is everything that he ever said. And no lie is of the truth. And notice what he says in verse 22. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the, the, the anointed one. So that, that covers a lot of ground in our day and time because there's so many people who say, well, we believe in Jesus, but we don't believe that he's the Messiah or that, we, that, you know, that he's the Savior or he's the one that came to, to, to save man. There are even Christian sects that, that don't believe that, unfortunately. They call themselves Christian in some way. Or you can look at non-Christian cults that, that believe in a Jesus, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. Very small example, I mean, the, the, the Jesus of the Mormon church is a totally different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Mormon church appeared uh, sometime in the, uh, you know, um, uh, in, in the A.D. days after, you know, after his resurrection ascension, they, he appeared in the, in the Americas. They base that on one little verse that they have misconstrued in the Gospel of John. Also, in their writings of uh, Joseph Smith, 
they, they believe that Jesus was the half-brother of Lucifer. And so they contended for, you know, some, some kind of supremacy with, 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 with the Father. And then, of course, that everybody would, would actually become a god, and then that's, you know, that goes on and on and on. It's just a mess, theologically. The Jehovah's Witness believe in a Jesus, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. They actually believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. They, they pervert the, they pervert the uh, language of the scriptures by adding an article in, in, in John chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the truth, uh, the true Greek passage. Uh, they add the article A so that it would say, uh, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Well, that A is not there. And, and the best Greek uh, scholars will tell you it's not there. So that's added, and then they say they got their own Greek scholars. Of course. But overall, they don't know what they're talking about. So, so they believe these things. And uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of others that just deny that Jesus is the Messiah. Then you can look at world religions and you look at, of course, Islam. And, and uh, that's coming up here in just a minute. Uh, they deny that Jesus is, is the Messiah. They deny that he's the son of God. They actually deny that he died on the cross. Well, they're in real trouble then with God because they, they believe all of those things. But the person who lies and denies that Jesus is the Christ, the next phrase says he is an antichrist, or he is antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. And that's where the, uh, the Muslim has their problem with God because they deny the Father and the Son, that Jesus was the Son. So verse 23 says, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same has not the Father. So if you deny the Son, then you don't have the Father. And you can't say, well, you know, I, I, I believe these things, and this is the way I believe, and, but, but, I'm, I'm a, but I'm a believer in God. Well, you can be, because the, the Scriptures make it very clear that if you don't believe in the Son, then you can't have the Father either. Why? Because the Father and the Son cannot be separated. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So it says, whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you have to know Jesus as who the scriptures say he is. Or else you're in deep, deep trouble. So the spirit of Antichrist not only pervades the culture around us, but may I say that it's even pervading the church. It has come into the church, this issue of the spirit of Antichrist. We've been talking a little bit about that when we were dealing with the, with, with the issue of, of, uh, of, of Jesus as uh, the incarnate Son of God and, uh, and so on and so forth. But as we get into the rest of this study here, and we've got about halfway to go here, uh, we're going we're to see that there are, there are those movements within the church today that deny the very power of Jesus Christ and attribute that power to other things and other people even within the church, which cannot and should not be done. So you might be asking, how can that be then? How can that be that there's even these, this spirit of Antichrist in the church? Well, I want you to understand that the spirit of Antichrist 
which by the way is also the spirit of Satan. You, you, have, to, you have to remember that and you, and you have to acknowledge that. The spirit of Antichrist is the spirit of Satan, the enemy. It will seek to change all traditions that are biblical, moral, and spiritual. It will seek to change all traditions that are biblical, moral, and spiritual. Now, scripturally, traditions are not bad because Paul talks about certain traditions. Now, for example, the Catholic Church takes that and says, see, we have traditions that, that uh, Paul has given us uh, the opportunity to use, but they've, they've actually given more, uh, more juice to the word tradition than, than what Paul even meant. So you have to really kind of dig to understand what Paul was saying there. But there are traditions. We follow traditions ourselves, even, you know, in all of our church services. They're pretty much alike and the same, except for the fact that, you know, we, we teach the Word of God. Every week it's different. Every week is a new page on the, in the Scriptures and, and so on and so forth. Those are the things that are important. Tradition sometimes is just a little bit of an anchor that keeps us kind of going in, in, in one direction. But uh, the spirit of Antichrist will seek to change all traditions that are biblical, moral, and spiritual. The goal, as it was in Antiochus Epiphanes' time, was to bring about an unnatural civilization. Now listen carefully to what I said. It was to bring about an unnatural civilization. Unnatural civilization. It comes down to one word found in Scripture as well as in the apocryphal account of the Maccabees. One word in the Hebrew, the word shana, shana, S-H-E-N-A. It is the word for change, change. Go back to Daniel chapter 7 now. Daniel chapter 7. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time at all on, on the, the deeper prophetic issues. We talked about these again. They've, they're on record in our... Uh, in our archives so you can get them on the, online. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly and it had great iron teeth it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it and it was diverse. The word diverse here in the Hebrew is the word shena. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So the root of this beast was diverse in the fact that it was different from all the other beasts. So the word diverse, shena, as used here, speaks of a beast that was different than all the rest as seen in the vision. It is speaking of the Antichrist and, how, and where the Antichrist will come from. The little horn in verse 8, by the way. The little horn is, is the Antichrist. But it refers more to the changed or altered kingdom that he will bring about. It's diverse and different because he has brought about a change, Shana, and altered the kingdom that he is going to bring about. Now, this is reflected more clearly then in verse 25 of chapter 7. So just go to the uh, down to verse 25, might be on your next page on your Bible, but Daniel 7:25 says, and he shall speak great words against the Most High. So who's the he? The he is the Antichrist. 
He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Now, when we did this study back, uh, I don't remember how long ago, but when we did this study, I was talking about wearing out the saints of the Most High, meaning that he, I mean, does everything to destroy the saints. Wears them out uh, spiritually, physically, emotionally, in every, in every way, shape, and form. And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And then he says, and think to change times and laws. Now let's dig a little deeper into that phrase. Think to change times and laws. Doesn't mean that he's thinking about it. It means, because the word think means, or, or it comes from the word sebar, which means with intent. So the Antichrist, with intent, wants to change the times and the laws. Shana is the word change. The times, of course, are the seasons, uh, the, the festivals, the, 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 the days that you use to worship God and in, uh, in the various uh, manners that the Lord had, had prescribed to the children of Israel back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, and in other places as well. He wants to change. He has the intention to change the times and the laws. The laws being the decrees and the manners. The manners by which they worship. I want to change that way that you worship. You should worship the way I tell you to worship. This is what the Antichrist is ultimately going to say. And they shall be given into his hand, notice, until a time and times and the dividing of time. What is that? Three and a half years, as we saw last week. So we know that it is the Antichrist. We know that he's going to do that in the middle of, of the seven-year period. And they'll be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time when he goes and does what he does in the temple. Now, last week I read from the first book of Maccabees, chapter 1, pertaining to what Antiochus did in trying to replace the faith of Israel with paganism. Listen carefully. I'll read it again. I'm going to start in verse 44 of chapter 1 of 1 Maccabees. It says, For the king had sent letters, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that they should follow the strange laws of the land. The strange laws of the land are now the new laws of the land, the strange laws being the ones that came in by the Greeks and forbid burnt offerings. What did the Lord want his people to do? Offer unto him the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, the drink offerings in the temple, it goes on to say, and that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days. They should profane them. Yet just, just mock them. You're no longer going to follow them. They're no good for you. Follow us and follow our laws and our ways and our gods and our ways of serving them and just mock yours. And then he goes on and says, and pollute the sanctuary and the holy people. The whole idea is to desecrate everything that belongs to God. Everything. 
set up altars and groves and chapels of idols and sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts, that they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanation. And listen to this, verse 49, to the end they might forget the law and change Shana, all ordinances. Change them all. You're no longer going to be Jews. You're no longer going to be separate unto your God. And whosoever would not do according to the commandment of the king, he said, he should die. That was the decree of Antiochus. Profane your practices. Pollute your temples or pollute your places of worship. Pollute your people. And to effect this change or this kind of change, we're told in verse 34 of the same chapter, and they put therein a sinful nation, wicked men, and fortified themselves therein. They put wicked people in places where normally you would put holy men. Men set aside, separate, to serve God. This is happening today in the church. For in many denominational churches and many churches that depend upon the seminaries that they will only acknowledge uh, for their, their particular denominations. Many of those seminarian graduates come out already saying, well, there's a lot of things in the Bible I don't believe in. And these will become pastors and, and ministers in churches and in Bible schools and Bible colleges and in seminaries as well, telling people that the Bible isn't really all true. They don't believe in the incarnation of Jesus. They don't believe in the, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in some cases. They consider it a myth, as I said on, on Sunday, about, about, the, uh, about the incarnation. And they have a form of godliness, as Paul said. They have a form of godliness, but they, not, they deny the power thereof. That's happening today. And in other kinds of churches, they, they, they've gone away from the word of God. They set it aside. They have worship leaders that, that, that lead in songs that have nothing whatsoever to do with the God who is holy and, and righteous and just and true. Or they, they put on these weird type of, of programs and concerts and entertainment to try to entertain their people. And people think that's a wonderful thing. And they never once open the Bible to hear what God's word says about who God is. So this reflects the perversity of the end time culture, especially in our own nation. I mean, just consider the politicians pushing the tolerance agenda today. They're 
everybody says, you've got to be tolerant about this and tolerant about that, but they're not tolerant about Christians. And they're not tolerant about Christ, and they're not tolerant about God and about the Word of God. They have tolerance for everyone except for believers in Jesus Christ. More about that shortly. This kind of unnatural change, in other words, changing the natural order as the Lord created things to be, keep that in mind, is spoken of by the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of Romans, Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, notice, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now jump down to verse 22. I'm going I'm to just deal with each verse here as we go, defining certain terms that you need to hear. Professing themselves to be wise, verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed. Ah, changed. Alasso in the Greek, linked to Shana in the Hebrew. And changed, which means to make different to make different the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, impurity, through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And notice this, who changed. Now, the word has a lasso in it, but it's a different word in the Greek. It's metalasso, which means they exchanged. They gave up one to receive another. They changed the truth of God. Notice what they exchanged. They exchanged the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. People are serving more the creature than the, uh, the, than the creator by believing the lies of the of, of the. Uh, of the tolerant world that says we need to be tolerant with, with same-sex marriage. We need to be tolerant to women who uh, abort their, their babies, you know, because they just don't want to have any more mouths to feed or whatever. Do, do you understand where we're going with this? At least let me know that you understand. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up. Gave them up unto vile affections, which means disgraceful passions and lusts. And here he goes. For even their women did change. Metalasso. They exchanged the natural use into that which is against nature. Against nature. Against the way God had ordered things to be. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman. Against nature. Against the natural order of things. Burned in their, own, in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly. That's an interesting word in the Greek. Askemosune, askemosune, which means indecency and shameful. Now what is it that most people tell you? Oh no, this, this is how they feel. This is just, you know, you should never prevent people just from loving who they want to love. Really? The Bible says it's shameful and it, it's indecent. Because it's unnatural. And receiving in themselves that recompense of the, their error, which was, which was meet, I mean, it was fit, fitting. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Reprobate. Adokimos, which means a rejected and worthless mind. People who have gone in this particular direction will end up having a rejected, worthless mind to do those things which are not convenient, which means it is not fitting for anyone to do. Because God did not create us in that way. So today we live in a worldwide society that calls good evil and evil good. We know that from the scriptures, right? Isaiah 5 verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's where we're living today. That's what's happening in our world today. These are blasphemous, arrogant attitudes similar to those of every antichrist, such as Antiochus, and who mock God, who mock Jesus, who mock the true church of Jesus Christ, who mock the word of God and everything that was created to be good. And they end up being heroes on, on Facebook. Or they end up being heroes in, in, in all kinds of social media. In Hollywood. On Broadway. Talk against God and you're going to be, boy, you're going to be loved by the world. I mean, this is what is mocked today. The very good that can only come from God. That's mocked. What James says in verse 17 of chapter 1, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or variation, neither shadow of turning. Antiochus Epiphanes decreed that no believer in the God of Israel shall be tolerated. No believer shall be tolerated. The one world system has arrived, and all that will be tolerated will be evil. This is the spirit of the age, the spirit of Antichrist. It has affected the world economically. Look at, look at the world today. I mean, look at everybody wears the same thing all over the world, right? One world government, one world thinking, one world ways. It has affected us economically, culturally, social media. Ultimately, it's going to affect us politically. It's almost there. It's almost complete in the political arena. Look at the United Nations. Look at all these little groups of, of, of nations getting together. By the way, it's very interesting if you look at the study of, of Zeus in, in, in Greek mythology and whatnot. Uh, supposedly, uh, Zeus became a bull because he wanted to seduce a woman. And uh, by the way, the woman's name was Europa, Europa. There are coins made with that picture of a bull and a woman riding the bull. By the way, Europe has been seduced by the bull of Antichrist and the Antichrist system and the Antichrist spirit. Because in Europe today, it is sold out. They'll be so ripe when the Antichrist comes. Religion, for the most part, is dead. True spiritual uh, belief in Christ is very, very rare. The world leaders are, are this, all this way. Look at, uh, just think of the president of France. What's his name? Macron. 
I think there for a little while, I thought he was going to call, him, call himself the Antichrist, you know. Kind of weird. Well, by the way, Israel did not fit in Antiochus, in Antiochus's world order. Still, the true Israel doesn't fit today. Because the true church of Jesus Christ is not and should not fit into this new world order either. And sadly, our nation, as well as much of the visible church, is turning away from Israel, which is sad because the Bible says very clearly in the book of Genesis, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And that's a truth that will bear out in these last days. So getting back to the Hanukkah story, and I'm almost done here. Oh, give me a, give me a little extra time, just a little bit. But getting back to the Hanukkah story for a moment, the idol placed in the temple, that image of Zeus, as I said, was to make, it was to look like Epiphanes, the manifestation of God. And I mention that again because this is the end time culture. It is the end time culture for man to declare himself to be God. There are a lot of gods today that are calling themselves God. A lot of people that are calling themselves gods in many different ways. What they're saying truly is, no one is above me. No one is above me. There is no God over me. There is no law to guide me. I am my own God. I am my own law. We can see things in in small ways, and we can see things in very large ways of this very attitude. Today, man is redefining morality much like the emerging church is redefining Christianity, or trying to anyway. I mean, these are books, these are book titles, by the way, in bookstores today, Christian bookstores. Reimagining Christianity. Why do we need to reimagine Christianity? What about reinventing Christianity? (laughs) Stay away from those guys, man. You know, when the thunderclouds come, they'll be around. But that's what's happening in the church today. What are we doing about the war against prayer and the word of God? People are changing the whole idea of prayer today. And you know, unless you're, unless you're in, the, in the in crowd that goes and does this uh, uh, contemplative prayer, you know, this, or you know, join prayer circles or do uh, labyrinth walking and all kinds of other things. I mean, what are they doing? All of those things were borrowed or taken from the New Age movement. They're taken from something that, that is against God, not for God. So, so what are we doing about that? What are we doing about the, the war against the word of God? I'll tell you what, if I ever, if I ever end up going to a church where, they, where I'm carrying my Bible and nobody else has one, I'm, out, I'm walking right out. I don't need to be there. And I've been to something like that. I love the word of God too much. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't worship with people who don't really want to know who the, the word, what the word of God says to them. I think we need to stand. I need to, I believe we need to take a stand for God's word. Amen. Oh, that was a pretty weak amen, but that's okay. 
me tell you what the key to the Feast of Hanukkah was. The key to the Feast of Hanukkah was the Maccabees. The Maccabees. By the way, the word Maccabee means hammer. It means hammer. The first key was that they did not compromise with sin. You can read this throughout all of the book of, of uh, Maccabees, both, both books. They did not compromise with sin. They drew a line in the sand. We as believers in Jesus Christ need to draw a line in the sand. I mean, we need to go into the world. We need to tell people about Jesus. Let's never stop that. That's, that's our calling. That's our, that's our mission. That's our commission, you know, that Jesus gave us. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is what we must do. But we must never compromise with sin. So they drew a line in the sand. We're not going to do what they're telling us to do. To, you know, to pollute and pervert the things of God. The second key to the Maccabees was that they were a minority and they didn't care. They were a minority and they didn't care. I'm kind of sad when I talk to people that, you know, they just, they just feel like, you know, the, the more people in a church, the better the church is. Is that, the, is that true? Can that, be, can that possibly be true? Again, I, I mentioned the fact that there, there are those churches today that, that really want to, uh, you know, they, they're, 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 uh, just want, they just want to get people in there, you know. I don't know if it's for financial reason or whatever, you know, just fill it up, you know. So we do what we need to do. You know, there used to be, you know, those the uh, seeker-friendly churches used to take uh, uh, surveys and take them and put them in mailboxes, and you you could read the, you know, what, what would you like in a church? <laughs> what would you like in a church? Well, some people put, well, you know, the, we could have, uh, you know, beer and wine served afterwards. And, There it is. Let's wake you up. That's not going to happen. Oh, well, we want this. We want more entertainment. We want this. We want more professionalism in, in the worship teams. Yeah, professionalism? I want somebody with a heart for God leading worship. I don't, I don't want somebody because they're, you know, master professional. They were a minority, but they didn't care because they stood strong for God and his word. Thirdly, they stood against the spirit of the times. <clears throat> they said, in effect, what the Maccabees said was, we, we don't want to be politically correct. We don't want to be politically correct. The fourth thing is that they did not bend the word of God to fit their circumstances. Listen carefully. They did not bend the word of God to fit their circumstances. They changed their lives to fit the word of God. That's what we must do. They kept themselves separate from the world. That is something we see in scripture all the time. That is what it means to be holy, to be separate from the world and separate unto God. Lastly, they became warriors. 
They weren't natural fighters. They weren't in the army. They were farmers. The Maccabees. They became warriors. But they chose to live all out for their God and his word. They chose to live all out for God. So they would stand and they would fight. And by the way, they would die if they had to for the sake of God and his glory. The passage that we read last time pointing to the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes, Daniel chapter 11, contains a hint of this Maccabean attitude. The hint is in verse 32. I told you we'd come back to it. Daniel 11, 32. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Which means they shall be strong and they take action. They take action. Let me read one last passage from the book of Maccabees. Because this is also part of the attitude that we're to have when we face the battles at hand. And by the way, we're coming upon a new year. It's a good time to start. A, a time to commit your life to reading the scriptures again, straight through for a year. Or do it, as quick, do it quicker than a year. Or do it three or four times a year. But to just devote yourself to it. It's a good time. You know, you know we make all these resolutions. We're facing tremendous battles in the church. And each and every one of us needs to take this particular stand. But let me read this, this, this last thing. It's verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 3 of First Maccabees. It says, Then his son Judas, called Maccabeus, rose up in his stead. Mattathias, uh, the, the father, died. And so his son Judas, called Maccabeus, rose up in his stead, and all his brethren. See, Judas was called the hammer. Uh, and, and all his brethren helped him. And so, do, uh, so did all they that held with his father, and they fought. Notice this. They fought with cheerfulness the battle of Israel. And I thought, wow. They fought, the, they fought with cheerfulness. By the way, the word cheerfulness is joy. They fought with joy the battle of Israel. They fought with joy. Knowing that they could die at any moment. They fought with joy because they believed in the God that they were fighting for. They believed in the word that they were fighting for. That would tell them that they, this was not it for them. They would have life through resurrection with their God. So I close with Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And Nehemiah, which is the Tirshatha, which is the governor, that's a Persian word. And Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Now the word of God had been read to the people, and when they heard the word of God, they wept. They'd never heard, they hadn't heard the word of God like that. 
And he says, Mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. Sounds like yesterday, Christmas. Everybody was out there eating the fat and drinking the sweet. Please don't tell me I was the only one. Okay. And send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord. Notice this. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The cheerfulness of the Lord is your strength. The Maccabees fought with cheerfulness. They fought with joy because that was their strength. They believed God and they believed his word. 